papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis every week on the latest news media issues. And I am your genial host, Rex Smith, and I am happy to be here with Alan Chartok and Judy Patrick, who's laughing at my description, and Ira Fussfeld. And we are your media projectors this week. Alan, you doing okay there? I'm doing great. You know, I walked through uh, five miles in the snow this morning, and it really wasn't bad. It was doable. And when I think of what makes news, it seems to me that the weather is always something that people are interested in. You can't get away from it. I know that you and Ira and Judy all recognize that because you all ran major newspapers and know that people want to hear about the weather. People want to hear about it, but we often don't cover it very well. It's kind of amazing to me when I was a young reporter in the 80s when they assigned a reporter to be the weather reporter, and it seemed silly. Why would that be silly? That's what everybody's talking about. That seems like that's a big issue, right? Did either of you, Judy, Ira, did you have a weather reporter in your newsrooms? Oh, gosh, I'm lucky I had a police reporter. <laughs> we didn't, you know, we didn't have a dedicated weather person. And the last thing reporters want to do nowadays is a weather story. And that's typically the story that happens after a 10-inch snowfall, and they have to do with the story about how much there was. I mean, that's typically how newsrooms have covered the weather. But what we're really talking about nowadays is covering it more substantially by covering, you know, our climate crisis. And that's far more challenging than simply talking about how much snow we've gotten or, you know, the tornado that hit in the backyard, although those are usually really good stories, are really substantial stories that need covering, too. There was a time that I put out a challenge to the newsroom that when they wrote a weather story in the wintertime, it did not include the phrase fender benders, because we've talked on this program about how computerization of news is coming in some places, particularly when there's stories that are formulaic, and weather stories are pretty formulaic, and the only thing that changes is the day and the amount of snow. But, yeah, I mean, people are interested in it, and you can tell from when you watch the local TV news how they'll read off the list of important stories, but tonight we're starting with the weather. And they also tease it. In other words, they'll give you a little bit of the weather, but you have to stay tuned for the regular weather report in 10 minutes. And they know that people are going to hang on for it. I think they recognize how important it is to people because I remember when the first Spectrum News, it is now, but it was first called when Time Warner first introduced local news in the capital region. I was the editor of the Times Union at the time. And the person who was running the news operation came to me and and wanted a partnership because they said, we are going to be putting weather as our foremost story. And if you look at what cable news does, local cable now, that's really true. They make the most out of weather of anything. And you'll find that the most popular media TV personalities are the weather reporters in almost every market. They really make a difference. 
What were you going to say, Judy? But if only we could get their interest in the larger stories as well, the climate stories. I mean, even for a newspaper to cover a snowstorm by the next morning when the newspaper comes out, it's old news and it's really not that interesting. People are short-term interest in, you know, the weather of that day. But getting them involved in the larger issues is far harder and far more complicated. How do you do that? What do you think we can do as local journalists? Just let me set the stage here. Abby Rabinowitz, who uh, directs the uh, writing program at the NYU School of Engineering, wrote an interesting piece in the Columbia Journalism Review this month that talks about how we've entered the solutions era of climate journalism, the solutions era. But I wonder, as local journalists, you know, what can we do? It's one thing if you're Betsy Colbert in The New Yorker to write about this, but if you are a local journalist in New York's capital region or in Peoria, Illinois, or anywhere else, how do you cover climate? Well, isn't it interesting that climate change in itself uh, is something that people have not been interested in enough? And so now when we see people doing the weather and there is a suggestion that this is a reflection of the way we are going compared to last year, for example, is it on the rise or are we going down? I don't know. Ira, what do you think? I haven't seen any recent surveys about this, but just like everything else in this country these days, where the, the population is virtually split in half as to what is and what isn't, whether it's politics or, in, in this case, climate. And there are a large number of people in this country who simply don't believe in the concept of climate change, and they'll say it until the water on their nearest river <laughs> is at their front door. So all we can do, we meaning media writ large, is report on what's going on and try to explain to people what's going on and what is to come. And of course, it's very difficult to do at the local and regional levels where our resources, our human resources are so small. But, you know, it's my it's my sense that the kind of coverage that you're suggesting needs to be done is being done, and half of the country is paying attention to it and the other half isn't. One of the problems is the coverage to date has been that it's such a huge problem. It's so enormous, and it's so uh, – the disaster is approaching that it's discouraging to people, and they kind of turn away, I think, this – idea that we're offering solutions about, you know, Earth Day, turn off a light today, or, you know, things you can do to slowly chip away at this problem. I think that's a good trend we're heading in. You know, we still have to beat the drum that this is an important issue, but also start to offer people some alternatives or some solutions so they don't get so discouraged that they tune out. You know, I graduated college in 1970, and I remember the first Earth Day. I can't remember if it was 69 or 70, but it's been that long ago. <laughs> sorry, I am. Huh? I'm sorry, I am just laughing. It's so old. Uh, well, I, the, the point is, is that Earth Day was formed all those many years ago, and here we are. Earth Day is continuing, and there are still people who haven't bought into the concept of treating the Earth well because it's not going to be around if we don't. Exactly. For a long time. So is the solutions approach something that we ought to be doing? If this really is an existential crisis for the planet, as I think scientists suggest it is, shouldn't we all, anybody who's engaged in the media, be doing something to really spotlight it every single day? 
maybe have a box on the front page of a newspaper or a segment in every newscast that talks about the issue and how climate is affecting us today and what we ought to be doing. I just wonder if there needs to be almost a meeting of the minds of journalism organizations to say, let us approach this as the crisis that it is and not just you know, report on it when there's a new report coming out from the United Nations or when the president is making a statement about his climate goals. We need to be more proactive, I think. You know, one of the things WAMC does, Alan, you have Judith Enk on uh, your roundtable program once a week, and she does raise these complicated and interesting issues. Judith Enk was the former EPA regional administrator, and she works diligently to advocate for recycling. So she does elevate the conversation in a way on a weekly basis on that local public radio station. Which is interesting because the radio station itself I know this sounds self-serving, and I do apologize for it, is now the number one radio station in the entire region, which was hardly the truth 10, 15 years ago when I remember my deputy came in and said, we're 13th, we're 13th, that's great. So, um, you know, so I think people are beginning to pay attention to climate change, although it's been a long time coming. And, you know, Judy, one of the things that you raise that is so interesting is whether or not Journalists have a responsibility, as Rex suggests, to put a box in, you know, every day if they don't think it's going to get more people to read. Yeah, right. Well, what's it, what's it going really to say? For the audience. What's it going to say? Well, take, for example, the other thing that WAMC airs, this fine little interstitial called Pulse of the Planet. And I think you have another one that is also climate-oriented. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think these are useful, and I think small bits, bite-sized journalism is often one of the best ways to actually reach people as opposed to the big takeouts. That means the, the longer stories that we do. So I think that's actually... A great idea. The little box I would say, here is how climate change is affecting our community today. Here's what you can do, solutions-oriented. Here is the proposal that's out there. And it's not uniform across the board. You know, the Times actually created, the New York Times created a climate desk in 2017. Since then, they've actually had an editor and a team focused entirely on climate. But at the Wall Street Journal, according to University of Colorado research, coverage of climate flatlined in 2000. That is, they haven't increased coverage of the climate in the Wall Street Journal in the last two decades. So that tells you what a difference an editor's decision can make and what a difference actual initiative can have on the coverage. Of course, the question is how you do it. You know, on CNN, when something is going to happen, they say, you know, an election is going to happen or something. And they have a box. And the box says, how many days till election? Now, how about how many days till the end of the earth? Yeah. You come up with an idea. There's a premise. And as the old saying goes, by the premise, by the gag, Johnny Carson. So if the premise is scientists have figured out unless we do something, we have so many years till we're all dead or until we look like Mars. And and then you count down to those days. You know, you say how many years or whatever. It's hokey, but it would probably work. It could. If our uh, listeners have any solutions, share them with us, media at wamc.org, media at wamc.org. This is the Media Project. I'm Rex Smith, Alan Shartok, Ira Fessfeld, and Judy Patrick are here. And we need to get to what was, other than Earth Day, last week's biggest media story, and that, of course, is the conviction of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. 
it was the overriding story, not only of the week, but certainly of the month, perhaps of the year. It was played huge in both broadcasts and the media like single word headlines in the Minneapolis Star Tribune did a single word headline convicted. That's what we did at the Times Union when Joe Bruno was convicted. The Houston Chronicle, Philadelphia Inquirer, guilty. I love the New York Daily News front page, George Floyd mattered. I think that was a great headline. But what do we think in general? Some thoughts about the coverage of the Chauvin trial and the general issue of police violence here. Alan, what are, you, what, what are your takes on that? Well, first of all, Rex, it's not only a one state, one city story. It became a national story. Look, there have been other terrible murders by policemen of, or shootings by policemen of individuals, but this became a national story. And it really took off. And I do think that that has a lot to do with the kind of attention that it got. Plus, the idea that a nearby teenager took out her cell phone and did a videotape of this cop leaning his knee on the neck of George Floyd. You know, so every time you turn on the television from then till now, you have seen that cop on that neck. And I wonder whether we would have had the same result if that teenager hadn't been standing there. You know, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. The fact that they had the video of the incident is what created the kind of story that we have wound up covering. And I think you're absolutely correct to presume that if they did not have this video, Chauvin probably would be walking the streets today. So, I mean, the coverage of the incident from the day it happened until the verdict has been what hinges on that video. And that's not a video, by the way, that was made by a professional journalist. That was made by a teenager. Does that mean she's now a journalist, too? I say that sarcastically because we've had this discussion before. Which side are you on on that one again? Yeah, I, I would forget. Add- <laughs> <laughs> I, my mind may have to be changed. Yeah, I would add that the reality-based news coverage, as Rex refers to it often, did, did a good job of framing what's happening and the larger issues of the militarization of police, what we need to do for police reform, all these larger issues. But didn't take long for the opinion version of the news, especially right-wing media, to take this in a very bad direction and to do race baiting. And, you know, essentially some of the coverage, especially from Tucker Carlson, was just plain dangerous and morally corrupt. There was a column from Jack Schaefer of Politico who said that Murdoch, you know, Rupert Murdoch, the guy who owns Fox, there's nothing he loves more than the lurid smell of burning garbage. And that's exactly what happened on Fox News within hours of this verdict. And it's not like it's not important because it didn't take long for some of Carlson's very atrocious opinions to show up on social media. So I think this is something we also all have to be mindful of going forward as well. One has to only wonder what the news media would have done with the opposite. In other words, if one juror held out or two jurors held out or, in my opinion, God forbid, you know, it went down the other way and they exonerated him, as they have done in so many police cases around the country, what would the news media have done then? Well, I think they were prepared for that to be the case. If you watched the cable channels, they, of course, had reporters everywhere. I'm sure that's true of the major print outlets, too. And they were ready for the violence that I'm sure would have followed a frustrated public. I'm sure there would have been lots of peaceful demonstrations, yes, but oftentimes segments of those peaceful demonstrations then turned violent and there were a lot of reporters in the streets. One of the benefits of having so many reporters in the streets is that 
they managed, I guess the term is to decenter the official story. That is, rather than just the verdict, the coverage that we saw presented Derek Chauvin's fiance, it quoted his brother. There were people, community leaders and folks in the streets. It wasn't just the verdict itself. It was the real people surrounding it. So that's good. We didn't just take the official stuff. But I think to your point, Alan, that's good. There would have been extensive coverage of what's going on, which is the journalist's responsibility. But then, of course, we get blamed uh, for covering stuff that people don't like to see. So it has always been thus, right? So here's another question. I mean, do we cover when there is a breakout of this kind? Do we cover everything equally or do we always do the sensationalized which is if somebody is breaking into a store and carrying out a television is that what we're going to see more than the peaceful protest now are you saying in in all media are you saying that only on cable news are you saying that for the new york times i there's obviously a distinction between these various media and one of the sad things for us who grew up in print is to continue to see that the influence of cable news and the three major cable news networks is disproportionate in my view but they have 24 hours a day to talk about it to opine about it to show videos of it on an endless loop and what they're doing whichever side they're on is collectively setting the agenda for the country. It's no longer the print or the old line media. Right. And they do tend to focus on the store being broken into and people, right. you know, coming out with the, the stereos and the televisions, although I'm dating myself with the use of the word stereo. But I think there's a reckoning to be held among the media about how we cover protests, because it is becoming a partisan issue. I mean, in public opinion polling, people in America, their support for our right to peacefully protest has fallen dramatically in the last year. And that's, I mean, I value the right to protest. It's one of our fundamental values. But we need to put it all in context and give an idea of how many protests there were and what's a peaceful protest and what's violence. I mean, the right-wing media has, again, demonized protests, and I think that's a very bad turn for our society. It's, in fact, happening officially because legislatures in many states, you know, are cracking down, enacting laws that would limit the right to protest. There's questions whether it's constitutional, but they're going to be put into state laws in Florida, in Arizona, in other typically swing states. In fact, they're decriminalizing someone who hits a protester with a car in Florida, I believe, which sounds outrageous to me, as though it's going to be open season on protesters if you're driving a car. And there's been a rise in the number of assaults on journalists by cops. After the shooting in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, the police apparently accidental killing of an unarmed young black person, there were a number of assaults by police on journalists and that led the governor of Minnesota to say this is a terrible thing, but it is happening all the time. And I think there's a danger there of police and journalists seeing themselves as uh, opposite sides in a conflict in the same way that Donald Trump pictured up oh, here we are 22 minutes into the show and I finally have his name out there in the same way that Donald Trump did this and put journalists on the opposite side of what he was saying. So do you think that's changing is my question. In other words, I've been around in a time when somebody has got a cell phone like the teenager did, but it's a journalist and the police say, get back, get back, get back. Now we have police reform. We have a modicum of sensitivity being folded into the police departments. Will that change now? Will journalists get a better break because of our looking at police? 
You know, I'd say the bigger problem is one that Brian Stelter, I mean, it's an aspect of the problem you're pointing to, Alan. Brian Stelter of CNN referred to the police say problem. In journalism, we tend to take what the police tell us as being the fundamental first line of a story. A police account is assumed to be authoritative, has been assumed to be. And we now know from, for example, the murder of George Floyd, that it was anything but. The initial police line on this was completely false in the context of what actually happened there. And I think any reporter who doesn't view with skepticism what they are told by police agencies is simply not doing her or his job. Right, yeah, I would right, I right. would argue, though, that the use of the word claim is provocative. I, I think there's nothing wrong with police say it's an attribution. It's not saying the newspaper or the TV outlet is not saying what the police say is accurate. It's only reporting what the police say. But if you say police claim, that suggests to me that you doubt what the police are saying. And that's a form of editorializing. So I, I don't see anything wrong with the way it's been done. But with many things, it's, it's really the point of view of the people who are watching it or listening to it, and they will view what they hear or see through their own lens. You know, this is the stodgy old conventional editor talking, but you need to also be careful about who you quote who's not an official source because you can get in libel trouble. I mean, I, I agree with Rex wholeheartedly that you need to be skeptical of what police say, but when it comes to libel, using court records and police records gives you a measure of protection. If you quote a neighbor saying, you know, that the other neighbor was beating up somebody, I mean, that gets you in potential libel dangers. And I think that is one of the reasons um, the media has been cling so strongly to this, you know, the official version reporting. Yeah, well, that's I mean, true. The, the police news is among the most interesting and best read and viewed subjects that we cover. And so mm-hmm. what if you walk into the cop station, if they still do that and look at the police blotter and you jot down what's on the police blotter and you report it, you may not in those cases say police say all you're you're reporting what the incident was in the police blotter. So I don't know. I think there's a compact that is reached between the reader or the viewer and the listener and the report that you're getting out of the police flutter, and you understand that all it is is an allegation, and it's it's not a conviction. Now, some newspapers you know, ran. Some newspapers ran the police run the police flutter. They run the whole. Block. Yeah. Well, I think most papers, certainly of a certain size, do. You know, uh, the first uh, little newspaper I worked for in uh, Indiana, the sheriff, I I learned an important lesson because the sheriff kept a sheriff's log, which I would go into every morning and copy down and put it into the afternoon paper. I discovered the sheriff was entering the sheriff's log in pencil so that he could erase the names of people who (laughs) he hauled in in the drunk tank. (laughs) And they wouldn't be embarrassed. And I had to be very careful uh, if I reported something in the paper that the sheriff subsequently erased. But it was an important lesson. It's funny, but for a young journalist, you learn something that, I mean, this is a hard thing to repeat in public, but I'll tell you something. When I became a courts reporter years later on Long Island, the uh, veteran reporter whom I replaced said, understand these rules of covering courts. Number one, all cops lie. Number two, all prosecutors know that all cops lie. Number three, all judges let prosecutors get away with knowing that all cops lie. That's a harsh statement, but it helps to keep in context the testimony that you hear from the witness stand. And you need to bear in mind if you're a journalist that, well, you need to be suspicious of everyone. As the old saying goes, if your mama says she loves you, check it out. (laughs) And how about prostitution? 
you know, there are increasing numbers of John arrests, and that's got to really have some resonance with the people who have been named. Well, in New York City, they are no longer going to prosecute the sex workers themselves. I remember writing a story about the law called loitering for prostitution, loitering for pros, in which you could just arrest somebody for looking like she was soliciting. And that was heavily used in New York City leading up to the 1980 Democratic National Convention in the city. They wanted to clear the streets of the prostitutes. Or was that the Republican Convention? Anyway, 1980. And now uh, they've just decided they're not prosecuting for that anymore, not arresting for that in New York City. Well, you know, another thing that I think we've all experienced is the complaint by the public that those members of the public that believe that the police news is segregated between those who have wherewithal or those who have are advertisers, those who are big shots, and that the news media will turn their backs and not report those. Now, that's, I believe it's, of course, not true, but nonetheless, people are suspicious and historically of that kind of alleged malfeasance on the part of the press. Have you not experienced that? You didn't report this because he's an advertiser? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that. Absolutely. It's quite the opposite, actually, right? If someone is yes. Yes. big and right visible and important. It's much more likely to be reported. I, I always found if somebody called us up and said, I ran into a little problem, is it possible that you won't report it? It may well have been something that we weren't going to report, not because we wanted not to report it, but because we, we didn't know about it. <laughs> and so they tipped us off to their own arrest. That's exactly right. what happens. You know, it's interesting that WAMC, for example, I noticed that our wonderful news director, Ian Pick, has, has got this done. If somebody is an underwriter, we always mention it. We always mention, even if, it, if it's positive or negative, they always say so-and-so is a WAMC underwriter. Does the press always do that, too? In other words, an advertiser? I would say no, not because we don't want to, but because the reporters probably might not know. I don't want to say probably, might not know. So if somebody is an advertiser and he is arrested for something or other and the name of his or her business is not affiliated with the arrest, it's possible that you wouldn't know that that guy ran that store. Well, that's one look. The other look is that the editors, uh, which you guys were, may well know what the reporter doesn't. Hmm. May. May. <laughs> we, that's assuming that editors pay attention to the advertising, uh, which is often, it just well, gets in the way well, of the that's news. That's right. I mean, know? historically, we don't. It's an interesting twist, Anna. Should we, yeah. whenever we write about, you know, the, the theater, say, yeah, yeah. or even when we do a feature story about a restaurant or a restaurant review comma, who advertises with this paper, comma, and continue. It's an interesting thing, possible, but yeah, it's interesting. We'll have to uh, come back to that in next week's show, a provocative oh. question by Dr. Shartok. We're out of time. You've spent another half hour with us, for which we are grateful, folks. Judy Patrick, Ira Fussfeld, Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks to our producer, David Gassina, and to you for joining us this week on The Media Project. Oh, newspaper men are such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the Now, pub The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of the Daily Freeman. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Readers get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. 
Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give three cheers for freedom of the press. 